We turn in Scripture to Micah chapters 4 and 5. The text is Micah 5 verse 2, a well-known passage, especially at Christmas time. But we begin reading at Micah 4 verse 1 and read through Micah 5 verse 4. And we have to pay attention as we read because it it kind of flip-flops back and forth between judgment, words of judgment, and then promises of mercy and salvation. So as we read, we're going to see this back and forth between judgment and at the same time, mercy and grace. Micah 4, starting at verse 1. But in the last days... It shall come to pass that the mountain of the, Lord, of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, into the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. For all people will walk, everyone, in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, saith the Lord, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. And I will make her that halted a remnant, And her that was cast far off, a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee. From the hand of thine enemies. Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron. And I will make thy hoofs brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou... Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel, And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide.
for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. Actually a lot more promising and uh, encouragement in that passage than I remember, but the prophecy of Micah as a whole is, has a lot of judgment in it. The text this, after, this evening is Micah 5 verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the prophet Micah, we may not know much about him, the prophet Micah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. That means that they lived during the same time. And the prophet Micah, as was also true of the prophet Isaiah, was a prophet to the kingdom of Judah, God's people in the southern kingdom of Judah. And he prophesied during the days of good King Jotham, and then wicked King Ahaz, and then good King Hezekiah. He lived, therefore, about 100 to 150 years before Judah is taken into the Babylonian captivity. And the prophet Micah lived through some very dark and sinful days, particularly during the reign of wicked King Ahaz. For example, in Micah 5 verse 12, we didn't read it, but in Micah 5 verse 12, we read that witchcraft was, was being practiced throughout the kingdom of Judah at the time of Micah. In Micah 5 verse 13 and in other places, we read that the land of Judah was filled with graven images. We read throughout this whole prophecy that the poor in Judah were being oppressed and mistreated by the rich. The the princes and the leaders in the land were very wicked and cruel. Yes, there was an outward form and appearance of religion and worship, but it was a mere show for many. The people as a whole were proud, they were hypocritical, and they were idolatrous. And because of all these sins, the message that God gives His people through Micah is a message largely made up of judgments. And, and warnings about coming destruction. At the beginning of this prophecy in Micah 1 verse 6, Micah prophesies of the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes of Israel, and, and the destruction of their capital city, Samaria. In Micah 4 verse 10, we read it this afternoon, Micah prophesies that Judah will be brought into Babylonian captivity. And in Micah 5 verse 1, which immediately precedes the text for this evening, we read these words. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. And God is talking to Judah there. He says, gather yourselves into a defensive huddle. Why gather yourselves into a defensive huddle? Well, because God has laid siege against you, and they... Those whom God will raise up against, Israel, against Judah, they shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. And the language there is meant to convey that Judah will be treated with contempt uh, and ridicule by the enemy nations that rise up against them. Their princes and their judges will be slapped across the face by the enemy nations. That's how badly they will be treated, how dishonorable they will be treated. The nation as a whole will be treated that way by their enemies. The city of Jerusalem, the powerful capital city where all the rulers and the princes live, that city with her princes and rulers will be destroyed and humiliated and treated with utter contempt. That's the judgment that's coming upon Jerusalem, the capital city, and upon Judah, and upon the princes and leaders that are leading the people. Well, in striking contrast to all this judgment, God also gives a promise of deliverance and salvation. That's plain from what we read in chapter 4, and that's plain also from the prophecy we look at in the preaching tonight. 
after that word of judgment in chapter 5, verse 1, we read this word of promise and encouragement. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. The idea there is, though Jerusalem with her princes and her leaders, though Jerusalem will be utterly humiliated and the kingdom will be brought into Babylonian captivity, nevertheless, I will not leave my people utterly desolate. I will preserve a remnant and I will give them their king. And remarkably, this king is not going to come from Jerusalem. This king will not come from the current princes or leaders of the land who are leading the people into all kinds of wickedness. No, but this king whom I will raise up from among them will come from lowly and humble and insignificant Bethlehem. Now in the midst of a prophecy predominantly characterized by judgment, this is a word of comfort. For the true church of God, for God's people, that remnant, This is a promise that gave them hope. The Messiah, the Christ, right? King Shiloh, the star of Jacob, is still coming. Despite the sins of the nation as a whole, your Messiah is still coming. And as we learn this evening, he won't just come from the tribe of Judah. We've looked at that already. But now this evening, there's more we learn. He comes from the town, the hamlet, of Bethlehem. That's what we look at in in the preaching this evening. We take as our theme Israel's ruler and his coming forth out of Bethlehem. Remember, we're looking at Christmas prophecies that are connected with the wise men. And remember what happens when the wise men come to Jerusalem. They don't go immediately to Bethlehem, but first to Jerusalem. That's where the princes and the leaders are. But then they are directed, right? He won't be born in Jerusalem, Micah says, He will be born in Bethlehem. So that's our theme, Israel's ruler and his coming forth out of Bethlehem. We look at three things. First, his humble birthplace. Second, his eternal goings forth. And third, his glorious position. Now this prophecy before us this evening is an amazing prophecy in many different ways. But let us first notice this. Micah prophesies that the coming Messiah, the king of the tribe of Judah from the line of David, would be born in little Bethlehem. And that this prophecy is talking about the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ is clear from the scriptures itself. We know that from Matthew chapter 2. Again, remember when the wise men came to Jerusalem, they appeared before Herod and they asked Herod, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. And then remember, King Herod calls his scribes and his uh, uh, chief priests, and and he asks them, and and they say, King Herod, Micah 5 verse 2 tells us, well, they didn't say Micah 5 verse 2, but the scriptures say that the ruler of Israel will come from Bethlehem Ephrathah. And lo and behold, as soon as the wise men are instructed in their way, and they start heading to Bethlehem, what do they see again? They see that star that they had first seen in the east. And that star would lead them right to where the Christ child was. So it's plain that this prophecy is talking about the birth of Jesus Christ. But what is so striking here is that it is little and insignificant Bethlehem where the Messiah would be born. Now, we are all familiar with the little town of Bethlehem, but before Jesus' birth, And we might say, especially here during the days of Micah, what was Bethlehem? Bethlehem was nothing. Bethlehem was a little hamlet just south of the capital city of Jerusalem. It was about five or six miles south of Jerusalem. If you had a map of Judah during the days of Micah, the little town of Bethlehem might not even make it on the map. Or it might just be a tiny little dot. And if it did make it on the map, you, you probably wouldn't see it because right above it, in big words, you would, you'd have the word Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the big city, the capital city. And Jerusalem received all the attention. That Bethlehem was so small, it's plain from the text itself. We read, 
But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah. When we look at that language, the first thing that we notice is that it's not just referred to as Bethlehem, but the prophet refers to it as Bethlehem Ephratah. Ephratah was the district, or we might say today the township or the county in which Bethlehem was found. And the district or the county of Ephratah is mentioned here in order to distinguish this Bethlehem from another town that had the name Bethlehem that was found in the north in the tribe of Zebulun. Micah has to make it plain. The ruler of Israel will not come from the northern ten tribes and from Bethlehem in the, in the tribe of Zebulun, but the ruler will come from Bethlehem Ephratah, from the tribe of Judah. Yeah, that little town, that tiny hamlet, that's the town I'm speaking of, Bethlehem Ephratah. The second thing we notice is how Micah describes Bethlehem. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah. And that word thousands, we could perhaps translate also uh, with the words districts or groupings. That's, that's what a thousands is. Though thou be little among the groupings of Judah. And what Micah is referring to here is Bethlehem's complete insignificance as far as contributing to the political life or the military life of the kingdom of Judah. Bethlehem contributed next to nothing when it came to politics and when it came to military because Bethlehem was so small. And so the word thousands in the text refers to the different districts throughout the kingdom of Judah. Districts or groupings that were generally made up of a thousand men in each district. A thousand men here, that's one district. A thousand men here, that's another district. A thousand men here, that's another district. And these were districts that were used for military purposes. So that a district was a a military unit of a thousand men. If you had to send men to war, you'd send them off by their thousands, by their districts. Um, So that as a group, they they would fight together as as a thousand, as as a district. Now, the big towns in Judah had many of these districts. For example, if a a city had 3,000 men who could go off to war, well, then that town had three thousands, three groups, three districts. If a a city had 5,000 men they could send to war, then that city had five thousands, five military units, you might say. And what Micah is saying here in the text Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, what Micah is saying is that Bethlehem is so small that it can hardly meet the requirements of even one district, of of even one military unit. It can hardly produce a thousand men from the town and from all the surrounding farms. It can hardly produce that many men to to form a district, a, a military unit. That's how insignificant Bethlehem is for the tribe of Judah. It really has no role in politics or in contributing to the military or the strength of the people's defenses. So this would be the attitude of many of the people in in the kingdom of Judah. Don't rely on Bethlehem to contribute anything meaningful if we have to go to war. Bethlehem is little. It's a little unit among the thousands of Judah. Now I bring all of this up because this is the whole point of Micah's prophecy. Bethlehem is insignificant. Especially compared to Jerusalem, Bethlehem is absolutely nothing. Jerusalem, Jerusalem is huge. Jerusalem has so much military significance, so much political significance, and Bethlehem has nothing. But, Micah says, though Bethlehem is so small and so insignificant, when you compare it to all the rest of the towns and villages of Judah, though it is small, Yet from Bethlehem will come the ruler, the military leader, you might say, the ruler of Israel. From Bethlehem will come greater rule and power, and spiritually speaking, greater political power and military power than a thousand Jerusalems with all of its princes and soldiers. That's the idea. And now, beloved, Try to look at all of this from the viewpoint of 
of Micah in Micah's day. Jerusalem was the place where all the princes and all the rulers lived and worked and had their influence. For the wicked and the earthly people that made up Judah, which was many, earthly Jerusalem was their hope, was their pride, it was their confidence. The wicked people in Judah were all about an earthly kingdom, and that earthly kingdom came to expression in their capital city of Jerusalem. There in Jerusalem, you would find the throne, King Ahaz on the throne. You would find the scepter. There in Jerusalem, you would find the glorious palace, all kinds of gold and silver, all kinds of government officials roaming around. This is where the people could place their trust in all this earthly power. And they were, instead of putting their trust in God. And then, from all earthly viewpoints, you would think that a king would come out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the the capital city, after all. That's why the wise men, when they come to Judah, they first go to Jerusalem. That's where you could figure that a king would be born. But God is saying in this passage, not out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, with all her wicked princes and her wicked leaders, I will will humble Jerusalem. Her judges will be shown to be weak. Yes, the enemies, I will raise them up against Jerusalem, and the enemies shall slap their judges on the cheek. They will be held in contempt, and all earthly pomp and pride will be taken from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, with all its earthly power, will be brought to great destruction. Bethlehem, that's where the king, that's where my king will come from. That's where Israel's ruler will come from, out of little, insignificant, even weak and poor Bethlehem. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata. Oh yes, we know Bethlehem did have a notable history. After all, that's where Boaz and Ruth had lived many years earlier. That's That was the birthplace of David, who was the great king of Israel in in those bygone days. But for the wicked people of Micah's day, who were so caught up in materialism, so caught up in earthly riches and splendor, who didn't care about the scriptures, thinking about their king coming from Bethlehem was completely contrary to the way that they would think. Bethlehem is but a poor, lowly outpost filled with farmers and shepherds. This is where our king will come from? No. We want a king with earthly power, earthly glory, exercise the kind of earthly rule like wicked king Ahaz. And God says, Israel's ruler, the ruler of my choosing, will come from Bethlehem. Well, if all this is understood, which I think it's pretty clear, then it's also easy to understand why God did it this way. Why Bethlehem? Why this poor, humble little town? Well, God does it this way because this is exactly how God delights to do things. He delights to show us that His ways are far higher than our ways. He delights to show us that He does not pick what man would pick, but He picks even what what man would consider to be weak and insignificant. I'm even thinking now of when Samuel came to anoint one of the sons of Jesse. And he had to go from the first all the way to the last, the little shepherd boy, still keeping the sheep. Because this is what God delights to do. We read in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 29, Not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not. To bring to naught, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in His presence. So that no flesh can puff himself up, but so that instead all the glory goes to God and God alone. That's true even of the preaching. God uses the foolish means of the preaching in the eyes of the world as the power of salvation. That's true of those whom God chooses to save. And that's true also of lowly and insignificant Bethlehem. 
God uses the things which man by nature despises in order to save his people so that it might be plain to all. This is not of man. We can't take credit for anything. It's the Lord's doing. That's even true when you look at Jesus Christ. Remember that about our Lord and Savior. The Christ would be a stump from the root of Jesse. And when you look at him, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men. That means of mankind. That's that's what you do when you look at him. You despise him and reject him. Nothing notable about his birth. Here is the king of kings. And where is he born? In a cattle shed, wrapped in swaddling clothes on the edge of society. And that was a lesson that God was teaching his people already back in Micah's day. a, A lesson that they sorely needed. I don't choose Jerusalem for the birthplace of the king. That would only feed and encourage your wicked pride in your haughty hearts. I choose insignificant Bethlehem so that no man might say it's because of us and what our hands have done and because of what God has seen in us. Now, congregation, we need to apply this to ourselves and we need to look at ourselves in the same way. God doesn't delight in those who are righteous in themselves. God does not delight in those who don't need forgiveness. Because they do need forgiveness, but they're, they're proud. God does not delight in that. God takes delight in those who know themselves to be the chief of sinners, less than the least. God, God delights in those who, who know that they are nothing and they have nothing outside of Jesus Christ and outside of His grace. And all their boast is in the Lord's name. God takes delight in those who are humble. I am emphasizing that too because this is one of the main themes in the whole prophecy of Micah. Think about even the, probably what is the best known verse in all of the prophecy of Micah. What does that verse emphasize? Micah 6 verse 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? He says this because the people in Micah's day weren't doing it. What doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly. To walk humbly with thy God. They needed to hear that because for the most part the people weren't doing that. To put it all another way, God does it this way. He chooses insignificant Bethlehem. To emphasize again the truth that salvation is all of grace. God's sovereign, free, particular grace. You see, the grace of God appears in the most unlikely of places. It appears in the little town of Bethlehem, showing that town a special favor and a special honor. It's also true with our own homes and families. Our homes and families, the most unlikely of places, From an earthly point of view. Who are you? Who am I? We are nobodies in the eyes of the world. And what's even more, we are sinners. We are wretched sinners. Saved by grace. He chooses us. He has in eternity chosen us as his people. So that all the fingers point to him. And he receives the glory. That's how he does things. Well, if the contrast here wasn't clear enough, if I haven't shown that contrast clear enough between Jerusalem and Bethlehem and between the attitudes of the proud and haughty in Jerusalem with the attitude that God delights in, God makes another contrast in this text. The contrast between the current rulers, the current princes of Judah, with the ruler that God would provide. A ruler, as we read at the end of the text, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. This ruler who will come out of Bethlehem will be entirely different than the rulers and the princes that you know in Jerusalem. They come and go, and they are short-lived with their short and evil days. But he, 
He will be one whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. This language is rather difficult to understand. Of course, when you read it, this language can only refer to Jesus Christ, who is the eternal God come in the flesh. You, you cannot say something like this about a mere man. His goings forth have been from everlasting. But what does that actually mean? First, I need to make a caution. And the caution here is against using the NIV, uh, the New International Version, and some other versions as well, like the ESV, who translate this last section of the verse quite differently in, in a very significant way. The NIV, for example, translates it like this, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Not whose goings forth, although that's maybe we might say minor, but whose origins are from old, especially this, from ancient times. Because the language, that, that's, that's something to point out, because the language God uses here in Micah 5 verse 2 is, is quite plainly and literally from days of eternity. In fact, the language that is used here at the end of the text is the strongest language that can be used to express the idea of eternity. So the King James does a good job from everlasting. The NIV minimizes it and translates it as from ancient days. Now, that may not seem like a big difference, but it is because all that the NIV now is saying, if I would preach from that, it would say Christ's origins are from old. They, they go back to ancient times. They, they go back to uh, King David, and they go back even further to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and they even go back even to Adam and Eve. His, his origins are from ancient times. But, but we could say the exact same thing about ourselves. My origins are also of old, of ancient times. I have my origins in Noah, and even going beyond Noah, back to Adam and Eve. So the NIV simply robs this verse of its wonder and its majesty. This prophecy, is God is giving it to us so that we might know that this ruler in Israel is not going to be a mere man. He is going to be God, who is eternal. So we have here, in fact, a, a verse in Scripture that affirms the eternal deity of Jesus Christ. So, and that's very significant. So I give you that caution. And that caution being given, we still have the question, what does that mean? Whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting? from eternity. Well, first, what we have here is a clear proof text for the idea of the eternal generation of the Son. Now, I just have thrown out a, a big term there, the eternal generation of the Son. That refers to the idea, the biblical idea, that since all eternity, the second person of the Trinity has been begotten of the first person of the Trinity. The first person of the Trinity, the Father, is eternally begetting the second person of the Trinity. That's something that this passage is teaching. That's something that we confess in the Belgic Confession. Article 10. We believe that Jesus Christ, according to His divine nature, is the only begotten Son of God. Begotten from eternity. Not made nor created, for then He should be a creature, but co-essential and co-eternal with the Father. He is begotten from eternity. Within the Godhead, the first person of the Trinity, the Father, is eternally begetting the second person of the Trinity, the Son. That's their relationship in a real way, Father and Son. Now, that's a wonder. That's, a, that's something deep to consider. We consider that in in doctrine class, in essentials, and pre-confession, but, but that's the teaching of the Scriptures, and we can use this passage because it's teaching that. His goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. That thought is especially expressed in that, that language, goings forth. And the word for goings forth, it is, it's not just origins, but it's emphasizing the idea of activity. Not just the idea of origins, but activity, as the King James has it. His goings forth. 
So what we have here is the eternal activity of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, being begotten of the first person of the Trinity. All right, so, so that's what we have in this text, a proof text for the eternal generation of the Son, which is a, a doctrine that's in our confessions. But I don't think we should limit the meaning of these words simply to that, being eternally begotten of the Father. And I don't even think that that's the main emphasis here in the text. So second, what we have here in this verse is this, a description of Christ's activity as the only begotten Son of God on behalf of His covenant people. As the Christ. His goings forth as the Christ on behalf of His covenant people. And that, I understand, to be the central meaning of these words. From all eternity, put it this way, from all eternity, God's decree was that Christ should be the mediator of the covenant. From all eternity, God's decree was that Christ would be the head of His church. And from all eternity, God's decree was that in Christ, God would gather and elect people unto Himself, and He would establish a covenant, a relationship, a friendship with them in and through Jesus Christ. Now, consider this. That wasn't just God's decree, but we can add and we can say more and say, from all eternity, Christ has been the mediator of the covenant. This isn't just something God decreed, but from eternity, Christ has been or is the mediator of the covenant. From eternity, Christ is the head of His church. From all eternity, Christ loved His church. From all eternity, Christ has always been the mediator of the covenant. Inasmuch as the covenant of God is an everlasting covenant, so the mediator of that covenant is always, has always been there as the mediator of that everlasting covenant. And what that means then is that from all eternity, Christ has been active. This is His goings forth from of old, from everlasting. He is active. He is going forth as the head and mediator of God's covenant. From all eternity, then, Christ has been willing uh, the blessedness and the salvation of the church. From all eternity, Christ has been asking for His people from the Father and, and giving Himself as a surety to the Father. From all eternity, Christ has been interceding on their behalf before the Father. This Christ is what we might refer to as the pre-incarnate Christ. We know that idea. Christ was there in the Old Testament before He took on flesh. He was the pre-incarnate Christ, working on behalf of His people, showing His love towards His people, interceding for His people, serving as their Christ in the Old Testament. And we see that in the angel of Jehovah, those appearances of the angel of Jehovah. Well, we can say you can go even beyond that, further back. From all eternity, Christ is there as the head of the covenant, loving His people, having their blessedness in mind, willing to, to lay down His life for His people. And that, I believe, is the central idea in these words. And, and that fits in even nice, whose goings forth have been from of old. Yes, in the Old Testament, He was active. But, but not just from of old. His goings forth have been from of old. Yes, even from everlasting. He's the Christ of the everlasting covenant. Throughout the Old Testament, you can see that Christ active, interceding for His people, blessing them, working all things for His people's good. He did that very tangibly in the Old Testament. And from eternity, Christ was there, was active as the Christ of the covenant. Now that's a deep thought. But that fits as a good interpretation, a good explanation of these words. Because, because not only does it do justice to the language here, but, but it also affords great comfort to God's people in Micah's day. You see, that's the part of this prophecy as well. For God's people, for the remnant in Micah's day, this was the comfort. That if this Messiah, if this Christ has been active throughout the whole Old Testament, from of old... And, and He's been active even beyond that, from everlasting. And He's still coming. That's the prophecy too. He's coming. Well, then we know in these dark days of Micah's pro work as prophet, 
We know that even right now, this Christ, this Messiah, is our mediator. Even as we hear God's judgment looming over us and these warnings of of the nation being brought into Babylonian captivity, we know that this Christ is an unchanging Christ. He would still be faithful. He would still have thoughts for us. He He would still save His people. And God would still send that promised Messiah at the appointed time. That's what God is, re, is telling his people in this text. There, there's judgment, but your Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the seed of the woman, his comings forth, his goings forth, his service on your behalf, it was always there and even from eternity, and it will continue for you even through these dark days. And for us too, that, that's a great comfort for us. Think about this, congregation. If Jesus the Christ has been loving you from all eternity, going forth on your behalf from all eternity, will He lose you now? Will He give up on you now? Will He let you slip out of His care now? Or through that trial? Or through that difficulty? Or ever? No, if his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting, then certainly they will continue on to everlasting. We sang of that. His throne is an everlasting throne. His promises, God's promises, are sure. This is a great comfort. And it's a great wonder as well. Because, put it together now and recognize what the prophet is saying. The head of the covenant, this mediator of God's covenant, who is the only begotten Son of the Father, eternally begotten of the Father, whose goings forth, whose activity has been from everlasting, who is the Messiah... He shall come in the fullness of time out of Bethlehem, Ephratah. That's the prophecy. Part of the prophecy is He shall actually take to Himself your own flesh and blood and take upon Himself a weak clay vessel and be born a man. And this Messiah who is the eternal God, shall be born in little, insignificant Bethlehem. That's a wonder, beloved. That is a wonder of grace. That's a wonder. It's the wonder of wonders, the incarnation. This is the wonder of Christmas. God come in the flesh. Eternal God, who is above time, who created time, entering into, into His creation, into time, as a little baby. This is the Messiah, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. This is the great I Am. And there in Bethlehem, you witness His lowly birth into your world and mine, as a weak babe insignificant in the eyes of the princes and rulers in Jerusalem, to be sure. Think of King Herod. And this is our Savior. It's a wonder. And then, and then in the course of events, we see how God works everything in His providence so that this prophecy is fulfilled perfectly 700 years after this prophecy is given. There you turn to Luke chapter 2 and you read how there's a Caesar sitting on the throne in the Roman Empire, the world empire. And God so works in his heart that this Caesar, Caesar Augustus, issues a decree that all the world should be taxed. And there you have Mary and Joseph who are from the tribe of Judah, who are from the lineage of David, who come from the little hamlet of Bethlehem, but they're living right now in Nazareth up in Galilee. And now they have to make that long, arduous trip down to Bethlehem to be taxed. And Mary is large with child as they walk down the dusty road to Bethlehem. 
And then what do you read on the pages of Scripture? But, but 700 years after Micah makes this deep and profound prophecy, you read of a virgin, no less, the Virgin Mary, bringing forth her firstborn son, where? In a manger in Bethlehem. And we know that that infant child, that Mary wraps in swaddling clothes, in which she cradles there in her tender arms, in Bethlehem, is none other than the Christ child, the only begotten Son of God. There is Mary in the cattle shed, cradling in her arms the one whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. From everlasting, this infant child has been active as the head of the covenant and as the lover of his church. And now here he is, born of a virgin, to continue his work, to really take up his work, to carry out his work as the mediator of his covenant people, that he might be ruler in Israel. That's his glorious position. He's born as a babe in Bethlehem, to continue his activity on behalf of his people and to fulfill this prophecy that he might be the ruler in Israel. That's his glorious position. And that word ruler there in the text means exactly that. Ruler, dominion, one who has the dominion. Oh, think about the current rulers in Micah's day. They are weak They will be utterly destroyed by the enemy nations. Their enemies will smite them on the cheek with the rod and bring them into captivity. But this ruler is different. He will be the ruler. There's no question about it. He will have the dominion. And he will be ruler in Israel. And now here we need to understand that too. Not just earthly, physical Israel. Not just the kingdom of Judah. But the true Israel. The Israel of God. The church the church of the Old Testament, and the church of the New Testament together, the church of God, the Israel of God. Jesus will be ruler in the church. And for the good of the church, He will also be given the rule over all things and over all nations, so that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And how will He be the ruler? He is to be ruler in Israel. How will He be the ruler? Well, exactly in this way. By carrying out the activity that he came to do. From all eternity, he has been active in his goings forth as the mediator of the covenant. But in the fullness of time, he's born in Bethlehem so that he could do that great work on behalf of the covenant. That great and astonishing work of dying for the sins of his people. Bearing their curse satisfying God's justice, paying our debts. And that's what he did. And that's why he was born in the little town of Bethlehem. Not so that he might be a great earthly king, but exactly so that he might suffer humiliation. Exactly so that he might die. Bearing our sins, the sins of his people, on his shoulders that God might on the basis of Jesus' atoning death forgive our sins, cast them into the depths of the sea, and bring us into a relationship of peace and friendship with Him. And, And Jesus' birth in Bethlehem is the first step on that path of humiliation that would lead to the cross. And why does He do it? Notice those two words in the text. Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me. God is saying there, Christ is the ruler. Not first, not first for you and me and for our salvation. But Christ is born in Bethlehem and he is ruler in Israel first unto God. Who shall come forth unto me to fulfill my decree to glorify my name, to carry out my purposes. He does it all so that we, with him, 
might give the glory to God. That's, that's why God is doing it. He will keep his promises, not just because he loves his people, certainly, but, but to show his glory in how he is faithful to his promises and how he does fulfill his glorious prophecies. God certainly doesn't need us. God, God didn't need to save us. We always need to remember that. God, God didn't need to save us. But it pleased him to glorify his name in this way, saving his people, showing who he is through all the perfections that shine through his son, Jesus Christ. Beloved congregation, this is your ruler. This is your king even now, exalted at God's right hand. This is your redeemer and your savior. How much we have to think about in this Christmas season. As you remember what took place in that little town of Bethlehem, remember this prophecy 700 years earlier and stand in awe of it. It is amazing. I, I was, it, it struck me how, how perfect God's word is. It's astonishing in every way. Think about these things and enjoy the peace of knowing that Christ Jesus came to be your ruler and your king, to bring you into that kingdom of God and to bring you into that friendship and fellowship with the maker of heaven and earth. In this Christmas season, let us go to Bethlehem with the wise men. We plan to do that next week Sunday. Let us go to Bethlehem and let's worship Christ, our ruler. And let us sing with the angels. Glory to God. Glory to God in the highest. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, what another clear testimony, witness, and display that what we read before us is not the word of men, but it is thy infallible, holy, authoritative scripture. We stand in awe of it, and we stand in awe of thee, who works all things perfectly. And we stand in awe of Thee who keeps Thy word. Oh, Lord, may we see that tonight. May we see that in this Christmas season. And may we rest in that. And may we always keep our eyes fixed on Him who is the ruler in the church, who has loved us from eternity, and who has been active for us from eternity, and will be our head and our mediator and our king unto all eternity. O oh Lord, what is glory is ours in Christ. To thee be the glory for all these things. Bless this preaching to our hearts and to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.